welcome to the monthly Skill Bites show, where we share information that is geared to helping you succeed in your business. This is Judy Weintraub, CEO of Skill Bites and host of this show. If you want to position yourself as an expert, one of the best ways to do that is to become a published author. Skill Bites author platform provides the easiest way to get a book written and published. Today, I am delighted to have with us Barb Bergeron. She's the president and principal consultant of SOS Organizational Services. After more than 20 years of experience providing training to organizations and coaching executives to be more productive, Barb has merged the latest research with traditional time management training. The result is a new approach to prepare business leaders to leverage time and brain power. Barb's clients have included numerous Fortune 500 companies such as Merck, QVC, ConAgra Foods, Certainty Building Materials, Shire, and Roman Haas. She's also worked with micro-sized businesses focused on leveraging slim resources to produce big results. Barb, so happy to have you here today. Well, thank you for the uh, invitation to join you today, Judy. I'm happy to be here. Let's start off. Can you tell us how you got involved with time management and organization services? Uh, my goodness, that goes back uh, a good 20 years ago, and um, I saw a need for um, those types of services with the uh, individuals that I knew. I was getting a different type of a business off the ground and uh, was asked to help some individuals do that. and. Um, uh, found that I had a real, real um, uh, desire to help people overcome things that, uh, lots of stresses that weren't really necessary. So uh, it was a type of work I enjoyed, and and found that I could offer something, and uh, and it's been with me for the last 21 years now. Wow. So what business was it that you were about to start? <laughs> I was uh, looking at a medical billing practice, uh, mm-hmm. trying to uh, carve out a, a niche for myself to work from home. Well, that would have been an interesting business as well. I'm sure it would have been, but not nearly as, as interesting as the work I have uh, found myself in. It's really been engaging and gives me a lot of opportunities to talk with people just from all over the spectrum. Uh, uh-huh. I've just um, been able to really get to know people on a much deeper level. When you when you start talking to people about their uh, productivity and their time management and organization types of issues, it's amazing how uh, personal and individual it is, uh, mm-hmm. with a lot of common denominators, surprisingly. But it's a very personal experience to to let someone in and say, take a look at what's really on my desk and and uh, you know what's going on in my my inbox and my thinking process. And um, I, I really enjoy the experience of of being able to uh, help people and and uh, and get to know them on that level as well. Can you share with us some of the interesting stories that you've had along the way? Maybe um, <laughs> finding something pretty amazing or dealing with the biggest mess you ever had to clean up? Uh, well, I, I stay away from messes in terms of um, 
uh, the really overwhelming. That's not really my forte, but I've certainly done my share of it. Uh, I once found a chalice uh, from um, Europe. Uh, that was the grandfather, the great grandfather's um, uh, a relic from their their family history that was missing for quite a number of years. We found um, lots of money. Uh, sometimes in the form of cash, sometimes in the form of uh, uncashed checks or lots and lots of things like that. I think the most unusual thing that I uh, uh, <laughs> helped someone deal with was a formaldehyde uh, jar with a green mountain monkey, I think it was. Um, and oh, that person I... was... Yes, that was that person was a scientist, and um, there was a real special place in this person's heart for uh, for that particular specimen. And I, it's been too long ago for me to re- recall exactly what it was, but it was an unusual find. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> Interesting. So you have a a system for helping your customers become better organized. Uh, can you take us through what you do? Or what we should do to be all mm-hmm. to, for us to be better organized. Sure, um, an organization is is just one of those key components of uh, productivity that you just can't get away from. Whether it's you know the apps on your phone or the 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 email in your inbox or the files in your computer or the paper sitting on your desk, uh, there's a lot of commonality to how you um, go about addressing those issues. Um, Regardless of what it is that you're looking at, there are some basic steps. The first thing is to figure out um, in advance kind of a plan uh, of where things are going to go, or at least the groups, not necessarily the final resting place, if you will, but but how to group things. Uh, When it's all said and done, organization is about creating boundaries around uh, different groups of things and identifying what that boundary is, and then just simply moving them there. But it's the process. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's the process of identifying those those boundaries that is the uh, the hardest part. It doesn't necessarily come naturally to most people, or all people rather. And uh, once you've identified that, the, the the physical part of moving it there is is pretty rote. Um, although it can be laden with a lot of uh, emotional uh, baggage that goes with that, and it doesn't really matter whether that's an email or you know some you know really important article to you that's you know, laying on your desk in a hard copy. Um, but once you uh, are looking at identifying those objects, you typically, excuse me, uh, identifying those groups, you're typically looking for between five and seven categories that you want to break things into. Uh, so take a, um, a paper filing system because we can all picture that uh, uh, very tangibly. And the um, you would want to look at you know, five to seven nouns, if you will, of what types of groups you have on your desk. And most people are going to, or excuse me, in your, your world, and most people are going to come up with a great deal n- more uh, categories than that. And it's a matter of, of uh, on paper, not, not with the physical stuff itself, but on paper, figuring out how you can uh, join groups together that make sense until you get to between five and seven categories. Uh, once that is done, um, Many years well, before ago. we go on, what are some of the categories that we we should have? 
Well, they're not always the same, and I don't think I've ever uh, helped someone design the same system other than maybe household paperwork. Um, but almost everyone has a different type of a system, and it's very much in line with how you think, what your personal uh, preferences are, um, as much as what makes sense. Um, typically, there are more than several choices to make uh, that you could make, and it's a matter of what feels right to you and what feels natural, because no matter what system you set up, it's, it has to make sense six months from now, and if it doesn't make sense to you six months from now, then you've wasted your time. And getting to that thought process that each person has can be a little tricky. Um, some of the categories I see fairly often uh, could be um, administrative, uh, an administrative category, a uh, client category, uh, marketing category, um, research, professional research of, of a whole host of different types. Um, if you think in terms of what you see in a larger company, a larger corporation, you typically have an HR department, you have a finance department, you have a marketing department, a sales department, a production department. Those are some of the common things that you see. And very often those categories will end up identifying the starting place for your uh, paper system uh, with some modifications that, that, you know, again, take into account your, your own personal preferences and how you think, what you typically think these things go together and these things do not. Okay. So once so, you've done that, go ahead. Step two. Step two. Um, many years ago, I heard a woman um, named Barbara Hempel, who's uh, done some wonderful work in this area. She identified three basic steps that you are looking at, uh, the processing step. And she called it um, file act toss, uh, turning the fat, if you will. So whenever you pick up a piece of paper to begin that process of putting them into categories, you start by asking yourself those three questions. Is this something I need to file? Is this something I need to act upon? Or is this something I need to toss? File act, trash, file act, trash. And you go through that basically with everything that you touch. The File categories, obviously, are going to then be split into one of those five to seven categories with some color coding, ideally. Uh, you might have a um, red category for all of your clients. Uh, you might have a green for all of your financial files. And depending on the level that uh, color makes a difference to you, you can just have a little bit of color in, in grouping those all together. For example, maybe just a the uh, bar tab that goes along a um, uh, file label, or it may be all of your files need to be green and the labels need to be printed in green ink. It, it can vary across the spectrum. And if you're a very creative person, you tend to like a lot more color. It's, it's really, it really comes down to left-brain dominant people and, and right-brain dominant people. And um, I'm putting those... Uh, categories in place uh, is very simple after you've gone through that process, of, which is a long process, but once you've gone through that file act trash and identified all of the uh, documents and, and pieces of paper that need to be filed away, it's just a matter of uh, executing it and uh, putting them into in their proper place. Does that make sense? That sounds pretty simple. And then you it have to get back simple. and 
go through the file. What's that again? At some point, you have to go back and go through that file for the things that you filed. Uh, yes, you do. Hopefully, um, as you're going through and figuring out uh, what to file, that file act trash or file act toss component is being uh, um, considered then so that you don't have such a high volume of information to file. Uh, but most people tend to do more saving at that stage of, if it's questionable. Um, not that I encourage it, but you do see people tend to you know, want to hold on to things uh, a little closer in that first purge. And it is a good idea after that to go back through and uh, at the very least you want to go through all of your files annually and uh, purge what doesn't belong there and some of the subcategories to figure out what, uh, what makes sense. But it's in the end, it's all about uh, grouping like items and putting things in their proper boundaries. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I understand that um, you're not in favor of the expectation by a lot of companies that when they're seeking new employees, they look for people who are good at multitasking. And in fact, that's often included in job descriptions that somebody be good at multitasking. Why why do you disagree with that? Well, I think this is really one of the key components, especially in this day and age, uh, that can affect our productivity in probably one of the biggest ways possible. The problem with um, saying that we want someone who is good at multitasking is that it's a, a misnomer. Our brains simply do not multitask. We, we don't ever multitask. And by not understanding the difference between what we're asking our brains to do or what we think we are asking our brains to do and what our brains actually do, uh, you um, risk huge productivity losses. In fact, every time you start uh, task switching, uh, switching from one task to the other, which is more accurate, a more accurate description of what you really are doing, every time you do that, uh, your productivity losses can be as much as 20 to 40 percent and your error rates are going to go up as high as 50%. Those, wow. those numbers can change pretty dramatically based on the complexity of the task that you're doing. But every single single time you switch from one task to another, you're not only using a lot of brain power, um, but you, you are also um, losing the, um, the thought process that you were on. So the, the key learning here, I believe, is to understand that your brains don't multitask. Um, we can't hold two things, two actions, uh, two action processes simultaneously. We can hold on to one and switch back and forth between the others. Now, I realize that doesn't sound like a big difference, but the subtle difference between the two is, is enormous in terms of what we can get done. So when we're bouncing around and uh, jumping from one email to the next and another file and you've got an Excel spreadsheet going on here and, and you're texting someone at the same time, your productivity on, excuse me, your productivity on any of those tasks is quite minimal. You're, you're making very small steps forward in all of those areas, but none of them are really moving forward in a big way especially not in comparison to what you would be accomplishing if you were taking each of those on uh, in a single tasking process. And those single processes can take place back-to-back uh, -back quite uh, close, but you know, finishing the one task that you're on before you bounce over to another task or let your brain get distracted uh, by the incoming uh, ding, buzz, ring, ring that's constantly going on in our world, uh, 
um, it's just a, another interruption to uh, what your brain is trying to do. Yeah, but sometimes it's hard to turn your brain off from thinking about multiple different things. Sometimes when you're trying to focus on one thing, your brain's thinking about other things. So how do you turn it off <laughs> so that you practice? Uh, practice. That's exactly what's happening to most of us in this day and age. We we have so many inputs coming at us simultaneously that it's um, it's really quite difficult for us to go back to what we started with uh, earlier in life when, when we didn't have all of those things coming into us. Um, one of the easiest ways that I know to understand it, there was a gentleman out of Stanford University a number of years ago um, that started looking at this. He, he was quite the uh, leader in um, uh, researching and understanding multitasking. And again, he was at Stanford University, and he was looking around uh, as a professor there and very confused with his students that they were able to, um, or he thought they were able to, um, while working on an assignment from him, uh, writing a paper or whatever, uh, how is it that they are able, he asked himself, how is it that, that they are able to be you know, texting with their friends or on Instagram or Facebook or whatever the, the latest social media uh, might be at the, the moment and listening to music all simultaneously to writing his paper? And, and he scratching his head and he thought, you know, I can't do this. Why is it that they are able to? So that began a whole research project uh, that he took years to explore. And what he found was that those individuals who identified themselves as high multimedia task users, excuse me, high multimedia users and, and um, uh, multitaskers, um, were actually the group that tested the poorest of any group available. Um, those individuals did not switch from one task to the next rapidly or uh, very well, very accurately. Um, and they were, in subsequent uh, research, he found that they were actually losing that cognitive skill to really have that deep thinking and to be able to control your brain into more of, uh, more focus, more concentration. And um, it was uh, quite impactful to realize that, and a little bit scary to, to understand that that cognitive skill uh, to be able to, you know, problem solve and, and think through uh, deeper issues uh, was diminishing with higher levels of multitasking. Uh, so it's really I think important. we're in trouble. Yeah, I just right. I look at our <laughs> our youth today, and they're listening to music, texting, going through emails while they're driving. <laughs> well, yeah, just while they're doing homework or whatever. <laughs> Well, there have been numerous, numerous studies to show our inability to uh, text and drive simultaneously. And even though we, and that's actually a really great example of, of how we trick ourselves in it. It seems like it's such a simplistic thing to do to text and drive because both of them, uh, well, well, driving seems to be something that you do uh, on autopilot, if you will. And you really do. You kind of move into a, um, as you become a better driver, you do do it quite automatically. Um, in fact, you kind of find yourself sometimes driving home and ending up in your driveway going, wow, I don't even remember driving home mm -hmm. because it's that, that much of an automatic process. 
uh, you've done it for so many hours that that it's quite um, unconscious for you to do that. And the problem comes up as soon as something happens that's unexpected, and your reaction time just isn't there because you've, your brain is somewhere else, whether it's someone stepping on the brake uh, unexpectedly in front of you or you know, something else that takes place. Um, that's really a great example of how your brain just does not multitask. It's not a difficult thing to spot those red lights coming on or the brake lights coming on in front of you, but your brain is elsewhere, and it does not uh, have the capacity to to you know type on a keyboard um, and watch what's going on on the road uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. So uh, we we trick ourselves into that, and unfortunately, it's not just young people who are doing this. This is something that has become commonplace in uh, executives of uh, numerous different age groups, and you know we are all thinking that that is the best way to work and, and that the most uh, productive people and the most successful people are multitasking, when in fact that's just simply not necessarily the case. But it is a big deceit that we have with ourselves. So we need to figure out how to go back to doing one thing at a time. Well, what I really recommend is um, we, we can't ignore the fact that all of uh, these media inputs are coming at us on a regular basis. And, you know, that is the new reality of the the age that we're working in. What I really recommend uh, that you do is to take advantage of the new technologies. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of great benefits that come from things like social media in the business place. And, uh, and technology is a great thing. It's one of the advances that um, have, moved our culture, uh, has moved our culture along in you know, dramatic ways. Um, but so we need to make sure that we are the master of it instead of uh, it controlling us. So what I really recommend that people do is to just be very, very conscious of which state of mind you are in. Uh, you need to do both. You need to be in that, that deep focus time um, at some point and stay there for as long as you possibly can until you then switch over to this multitasking world. And I'll continue to use that, that, that word, even though it's not quite accurate. But once we recognize that both of those states exist, and they're both important to acknowledge, then your real task is to stay in that, that focused, deep, thoughtful time for... Uh, as, as long as you can get by with, and um, and then recognize that it's time to move back over into the other world and handle all of the smaller, less important tasks. Um, usually answering an email isn't the, the real work. It's the work that comes uh, as a request from email. But we think of email processing as being the big task. And it sometimes can be that that's where the big work is, but more often than not, it's the work behind the answering of the email. So the answering of the email is the, the multitasking area. And that thoughtful process that goes behind you know, the answer that you give is the focused work. So stretching out those time periods where you group together, just like we were talking about the paper, you know, group like items. You're also wanting to group like time, like tasks. Uh, when you can put a lot of the, you know, put your, your email response time, in, you know, together rather than sporadically throughout the entire day, then you're much more effective. If you think you're answering email uh, or looking at email once 
every 15 minutes, let's say, um, you're actually not. You, you, when, when a camera is placed there at uh, someone's workplace, um, you find that they're looking at email far more often than every 15 minutes. And 15 minutes is pretty, pretty frequently. And lots of people don't uh, even try to hide the fact that they read every email as they see it come in. Um, you can be really instantaneous in your responses, but you can't ever be really thoughtful about what goes into that email unless you take the time to not be distracted and to to uh, be focused on, on single tasks uh, at a time. Does that uh, make sense? Yeah, and uh, for that reason, I don't have the... Um switch on to get emails, to see emails as they come in, because it is very distracting. And um, you see something that comes in that you want to address, and you have to shift gears. Whereas if you just put it on manual, then you don't see it, and you address it when it's more convenient for you to take a look. That's a great tool. You have a lot of self-discipline. Not everyone shares that. Uh, if you can, can do that, that's fantastic. That does give you the control over acknowledging you know, when you move into that email uh, type of work and, and when you stay out of that. Uh, unfortunately, most people do not. They can't resist the temptation of having the little icon up um, and knowing what's going on around them. Now, sometimes there's, uh, there's some positions, some uh, um, jobs that actually require you to do that, but they're fewer and further between than you might think. When you really step back and, and ask yourself, how often do I need to be in email? How, how frequently? What happens if I only check it every 15 minutes? What happens if I check it once a, a half, every half an hour or once an hour or three times in the morning? Um, whatever the, the qualifier is that you determine, if you can stay out of it like you are doing, you know, uh, with willpower or discipline, um, by turning it off, uh, the better. But lots of people don't believe they have that option available to them. One of the things that I recommend that uh, individuals do if they're feeling that pull of, I need to be available, or I need to, to know whenever my boss sends me an email. I, I have to respond, uh, if not immediately, very close to that. Now, very often, that's not actually the case, but we feel like that's the case. Um, if you are in a position where you feel like that, um, setting up an alert for those individuals that you feel like you just simply cannot miss their emails. Now, that's different than the, the little icon that pops up at the, uh, the bottom of the window to tell you that you've just received an email or gives you a little bit of a preview. And God forbid you're, you're still listening to a ding every time you have an email coming in. Um, but if you turn on this alert system, anytime you are in, and this is for Outlook, um, anytime you have a Microsoft product open or have the Office uh, suite open, as soon as an email comes in from that individual, then you get uh, a notification that pops up. You don't get one for every email that comes in, but when your boss sends you an email, if that's the alert that you've set up, you'll get a notification. And that's much, much, much better than having uh, that preview come up for every email that comes into your inbox so that you can monitor when your boss is sending you an email or a key client or whomever that person is that uh, always squeaks the loudest uh, and wants a response very, very quickly. 
it's a, it's an important task to figure out what needs to be instantaneous and what needs to be timely because there is a difference. And you could be very successful and probably far more successful in your work if you are timely rather than instantaneous. Right. I always figure that if I'm answering something instantaneously, then somebody's going to be expecting me to answer instantaneously every time they send something (laughs) to me, and I don't want to set up that expectation. Uh, That is a really good point. I was speaking with a group yesterday, and uh, one individual was a manager, and she was explaining that uh, it took her quite a long time to understand that people uh, that work for her, uh, if she sent them an email at, at uh, 7 o'clock at night, that the responses from the entire staff started coming in you know, almost immediately. And she was scratching her head thinking, why are you doing this? You know, just because I'm sending you an email right now doesn't mean that you need to you know, interrupt your, your evening hours and, and uh, come back to you know, what I'm asking you. I can wait until tomorrow. But they didn't believe that that expectation was there until she very um, pointedly said to them, you know, don't do that. Um, I'm not looking for a response right away. Uh, you may have heard of Shonda Rhimes for, for, as, as another example. Um, if, if you're familiar with her, Shonda Rhimes is a, uh, the queen of uh, primetime television. I think she has three shows on right now in uh, the uh, primetime slots, uh, I think Thursday night. Um, and she took a look at her life and her business world a few, about a, a year ago, I believe it was, and said, what am I doing? Um, why am I spending all this time 24-7 in doing work when I'm not allowing myself to have any other type of a life? So I mean, she's the executive producer of three different primetime television shows that are on right now. And she's put an automatic response in her email for anything that came in after 7 o'clock. She said, I don't answer email. The automatic response was, I don't answer email after 7 o'clock at night, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but it, it had a, a sentence or two in there saying, you know, if you work for me, turn your computer off and go spend time with your family. And, um, and there are lots of people at very successful levels. Louis C.K. comes to mind. He turned off Twitter about a year ago. So this is just a, a silly use of my time, and it's not moving anyone forward here. And, um, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't values to both email and Twitter, but uh, the 24-7 uh, starts controlling us, and, and we don't have uh, the ability to say no to it. Unless right. we take the reins and say no to it. Mm-hmm. Now, you also um, have some a theory about decision fatigue. Can you share that with us? Uh, sure. Um, Judy, a while back, I, I realized that I was really at a crossroads with my business because, you know, as we were talking about earlier, I've spent the last 20 years working with people on, on being more effective, more productive, uh, more uh, organized, better organized. And um, I really found that the, the type of solutions I was able to give to my clients was really changing. It didn't have, it wasn't getting them where they needed to be. And, you know, all of the things that I was teaching them were certainly accurate, but, but they weren't addressing the newer problems that we were facing, like, like the, um, 
the distractions that we're we're all faced with on a regular basis now. So I really took a step back and and went in search for new answers and new approaches to you know what can we learn from the science community that we can apply to you know productivity issues, personal productivity issues. And that was one of the things that I came upon very early on was uh, this concept of decision fatigue. What that means is that our brains have a finite capability over the course of a day to make decisions. And once the brain has reached, uh, has built up on, on, uh, on making decisions, then it does one of two things. It either stops making decisions or it is looking for the easiest uh, choice that it can make, that choice that is going to utilize the least amount of brain power. So you're going to be less likely to weigh the options. You're going to do more of going with your gut. You're going to, um, some people will be more risk adverse. Some people will take bigger risks, depending on, you know, which is easier for you. Uh, but whatever that is, you know, inside of you, you are not going to be making the best decisions that you possibly can later in the day. And um, you know, once scientists started learning this, um, it, it it can be very, very impactful. One of the studies early on that uh, pointed this out to me was um, one group of researchers looked at uh, judges and how they make decisions. And they looked at uh, one court system with eight judges in it and looked at all of their parole cases over the course of almost a year. It was like 1,100 cases. And what they found was that there was this very, very clear-cut bias that took place. Um, but that bias, it didn't have anything to do with some of the stereotypical biases that we would assume. It wasn't um, you know, gender or, or ethnicity or any of those things. It was the time of day they found that those parole cases that came up to them first thing in the morning were uh, looking at about a 70% chance of being paroled. And yet those cases that came to them at the end of the day only had about a 10% chance of being paroled. That's a significant difference. And it really points to uh, this phenomenon that we know now as decision fatigue. Um, there's a few peaks and valleys throughout the day, mostly uh, around glucose intake, uh, healthy glucose or, or not healthy glucose. Um, and, and you can bring it back up for shorter periods of time uh, throughout the day, but, uh, but it gets less and less every time. That's also very closely uh, related to willpower, your, your ability to be disciplined and um, uh, resist temptations of things that are not necessarily good for you or healthy for you or productive for you. And all of those things diminish throughout the day. Um, once we understand that, then you can see quite quickly, you know, some of the things that you need to do differently from what you may have been doing in your, your work life uh, prior to understanding that. Um, I mean, obviously, the best thing that you can do is to carve out um, usually about 90 minutes uh, at a time, first thing in the morning, to tackle your most important, hardest, most taxing work. And that's not necessarily, not, not only is it not necessarily, it's, it's not uh, going to be that multitasking phase that you, um, we find ourselves in. That's, that's a great time of the day 
to take advantage of your brain's ability to be more focused uh, and do more concentrated work. Um, and then save, you know, the, uh, the multitasking types of, uh, of work that you do for, you know, times that your brain is not quite as uh, available to be um, focused. So um, that's, that's something that you can do to alleviate a great deal of your uh, uh, problems with focus and, and concentration. Right, and having snacks and taking breaks and getting outside, things like that can help as well. Absolutely. All of the things that you just mentioned there are wonderful things to do um, periodically through the day. Uh, I mentioned 90 minutes, and, and we really find that that, uh, that same time frame that uh, if you look at sleep cycles at night, um, they take place, you know, you go in and out of different phases of sleep about every 90 minutes. And uh, we find those same um, uh, circadian rhythms take place during the day as well. So if you spend 90 minutes or thereabout uh, really focused on one particular task and then give your brain a, a break, Take, you know, get up physically, get up and move, um, exercise, and uh, you mentioned being outside. One of the best things you can do for your brain at any given point during the day is to take a, a walk. It, it enhances um, uh, creativity as much as anything, and your ability to be innovative and find different types of solutions to, to problems. Um, taking a walk outside is, is a great way to give your brain a break. It's also a good time to interact with other individuals. Um, if you're going to be spending 90 minutes working and wanting to be inter, uh, not interrupted and you're in a, you know, a traditional work environment, then you know that's a great time to interact with those around you, assuming that they're not trying to spend their 90 minutes working you know, at that point in time. Um, uh, glucose intake uh, take, having a healthy snack during that time frame gives your body another source of energy to, to feed off of, literally to feed off of. Um, usually they recommend something along the line of a banana or about that amount of, uh, of energy. You know, your, your, your sources can be you know, the most obvious uh, places that you can get glucose are you know, unhealthy snacks. Anything that has sugar, that's a, you know, a high glucose uh, uh, intake that you can have, but but glucose can be found in most fruits and vegetables, and and you can make it a, a very healthy snack. But you know, feed your body. You know, you've heard of the, uh, you know, five or six small meals a day, and it, it really fits in incredibly with how your brain likes to function and what it needs throughout the day. So yeah, give yourself a break. Great. Uh, now, you have recommended that we should work like an athlete. What do you mean by that? Well, some of the groups that have really been studied for the habits and, and uh, uh, the rituals, habits that um, peak performers have uh, are athletes. But if you think of any type of a, a really peak performer in their field, 
Uh, it could it can be athletics. It can be grandmaster chess players. It can be uh, top level musicians. But when scientists have looked at those very 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 top level performers, um, they have a lot of things in common. There are a lot of common characteristics. We find that they tend to work for about 90 minutes in the morning. Um, they almost always practice in the morning, and they seem to do it in about 90 minute increments. Take a break, come back at it in a very very focused way for another 90 minutes, and they spend it at a good four four and a half hours in the early parts of the day working on uh, what athletes tend to call um, deliberate practice or practice with a purpose, and um, and they are working on, when they're doing this practice with a purpose, they're really looking at what do I not do well. If I want to be a swimmer, um, what what is my weakest link right there? Is it uh, making the turn in the pool? Is it my endurance? Is it uh, my stroke? Is it um, you know, whatever it might be? But what's my weak link? And then focusing on that. I once had a, an opportunity to speak with someone in the NFL, uh, affiliated with the NFL, and um, ask them about, uh, you know, what does practice look like during the, the season for, you know, football teams and professional football teams. And he explained that it was, um, they start out in the morning uh, on the field practicing as a team, and um, that practice is filmed. Uh, so then they take a break, they go inside, they watch the film and, and identify the weak links, you know, what, what did we not do well? What do we need to work on? And once those things are identified, they go back out on the field and work specifically on that. Uh, then they come back in, they watch that tape, and then they go back out on the field and, and practice that again. And, and it's this process of identifying the weak link, uh, working on it until, you know, multiple, multiple iterations until it is absolutely mastered. And uh, that's another one of the characteristics that we see with, with musicians and grandmaster chess players as well. Now, when they're doing that, what they're getting is constant, uh, immediate feedback, which can be hard in the business world to, to get. When you send an email, you don't know, you know, was that a nine or is that, was that a three in terms of, you know, effective communication? Uh, whereas, right. I was trying to figure out how, how do you translate that to the business world? Uh, well, it's a great question, but uh, you are looking for, in, in, a, in an ideal setting, you really do want to try to figure out, you know, how can I get feedback on, on doing this? Am, am I uh, in need of asking my colleagues um, for input? Uh, a lot of, well, almost all athletes will be working with a coach, and sometimes that's an effective tool for individuals to to take on when you're really looking to improve yourself in, in specific areas. Um, but it's that sense of being able to get immediate feedback. It might be in you know, writing a blog. Uh, people use the number of people that are, are viewing it or reading it or forwarding it, uh, sharing it. Um, that's a numeric way of getting you know, immediate feedback. Um, it can be difficult. It's more difficult to figure those things out in terms of how can I know whether or not I'm doing this right. Um, and it takes a great deal more work. But it, but it is the way that uh, you know the peak performers in in athletics are are operating. Um, they're also relying very very heavily on habits and rituals. It's teaching your body to you know 
through training to perform in very specific types of ways. And, um, and the more often that's done, uh, the more likely that moves into uh, an automatic response so that you are performing um, on autopilot, really. And you know, the reason that that's so important is not just the physical attributes of that, but when you do something on autopilot, um, then your brain is opening up um, the availability for other brain power to be available. Um, a study at Duke University a while back, quite a while back now, found that about 40% of our habits throughout the day uh, excuse me, 40% of our actions throughout the day are unconscious. They're, they're habits that we don't even realize that we are, are performing. And uh, the more we can identify you know, what actions that we, uh, what actions we're doing that are habits and make sure that those are good, positive, you know, productive habits, uh, the more effective we can be, the more productive we can be. So once you've identified that, uh, for example, you know, using that focus time first thing in the morning is a really, really strong productive habit. And the more often you do that, um, you, by performing that on a regular basis, you just dig that habit deeper and deeper into your, gra- your brain. It's like uh, digging a groove um, um, until it becomes you know, so automatic that, that you don't have to find the willpower or the discipline to perform that action on a regular basis. It, it's just built into your day. Uh, much the same way as someone who, you know, runs two miles every morning. Um, they've got a very specific habit that they, you know, will maybe climb out of bed and within five minutes of the, that time, they're out running the same routine that they run, uh, the same route that they run every morning. And it's just very rote. Um, they get all the benefits of that without having to put a lot of willpower into it. Now, they certainly have to put that willpower in up front and in informing, informing that habit. But once it's there, uh, productive habits just are very automatic. Sounds like a great approach. Uh, once you put the work up front, sure. Yeah. And I understand is. that you do something for about 30 days, somewhere between 30 and 60 days, and that habit does become ingrained. Well, I've seen differing accounts of that. Um, some groups, uh, I think the American Cancer Society might have been uh, the group that made it really popular to say uh, 21 days will, will change a habit. You don't break habits, incidentally. You, you uh, replace them. Um, but um, how long you need to do it is uh, up for debate. A lot of people have differing opinions. But it can be different for individuals with a type of habit. Um, I don't think there's really a specific time frame, but the longer you do something, the more often you do it, uh, the more of a habit it is. I've even heard some researchers refer to uh, things that you did maybe as a child, like riding a bike. You, you oftentimes hear it's just like riding a bike, you never forget. And because you spent so many hours doing that, it's it's just there in your brain, and you may go for 20 years without riding the bike and, and go back to it, and it just automatically comes back because it is a learned skill. It is a learned um, uh, chunk piece of inform- or, or habit uh, exercise that is just in your brain and because there's a very deep groove, and once you reopen those those pathways, you're, you're looking at the... the uh, 
they existed the entire time, and you're just kind of reopening them again. Well, we're almost at the end, but I want to cover one more topic, and that is creativity. Can you give us some tips for how we can improve our creativity? Uh, yeah, it's becoming a really popular area to look at in the business world. Um, when we when we say creativity, we're really talking about problem solving, innovation. Uh, the, the, these characteristics are just becoming more and more um, the this, the skill set that people are looking for um, in in your best leaders in the business community. Uh, how you go about improving that is um, well, there was a study done at Drexel University. Um, a group of researchers was looking to see what they could observe by putting people in a uh, functional MRI machine. And what they found was that if they gave them a problem to solve, uh, they actually used compound words in this particular case, but if they gave them a problem to solve, they, could, they found that they could spot who was going to have that aha moment and who was not based on the alpha waves that were present in the, the MRI that they were looking at, in the brains they were looking at. And if they had uh, a high enough level of alpha waves, which is very closely associated with relaxation, then they uh, were the most likely to have that aha moment. Uh, we know that you know, when you ask people you know, when they have had those those aha moments. They tend to say that it was in the shower. It was when I was drifting off to sleep. It was when I was driving, you know, uh, home from someplace or driving in the car um, or walking outside. We mentioned this earlier, but but uh, nature and exercise both do amazing things to uh, reshape our brain. We, uh, we get different chemicals that, that come into the brain. Please don't ask me to explain that, but uh, I, I do know that uh, the brain chemistry actually changes with, with exercise and even minimal amounts of it. And uh, for some reason that I've uh, not heard any scientists be able to explain uh, that I've found to date, um, nature does the same thing. And maybe it's the complexity of nature that you're witnessing that uh, has so many interactions, uh, you know, who knows? But... Uh, they can even uh, spot very, very small amounts, as small as having uh, you know, a nature picture on your screensaver will uh, be measurable in terms of, of being able to change the brain chemistry. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's something that we're just beginning, or not we, the, the science community is really you know, beginning to... Uh, look into and research and, and, and uh, find out you know, what, what does work and what does not. But uh, relaxation, exercise, uh, being outside. Um, another thing that is you know, really important to understand about creativity, and creativity takes place when you either create something completely new, uh, which doesn't happen very often. It's almost always the case that you're building upon you know, earlier learnings, um, or you're making new connections. Making new connections can be uh, where you find the most creative problem-solving uh, in today's world or in, in any world. Um, but in order to be able to make those, those new connections, you have to have a, a pretty big reserve of, of memories to work from. And the more you can expose yourself 
uh, to different, uh, different areas of life, um, completely outside of, of the work that you do. Those things can be incredibly helpful in coming up with something very, very new. One of, one of the examples that I often use is that Steve Jobs um, was insistent that we have fonts in our computers, and we all have you know, numerous fonts and sizes and so forth to work from. But that came from him taking a calligraphy class at Reed College you know, back in the 70s. You know, who would have ever put you know, calligraphy and computers together? But uh, that's those types of connections. Uh, the barcode scanner is another example of um, that came from one of the inventors of that, uh, of the barcode scanner, um, having been taught Morse code in the Army during World War II. Um, they are you know, combining completely new, disparate things. And the more you expose yourself to a whole uh, host of new learnings and, and uh, completely different uh, things outside of your, your bandwidth, then you are being far more likely to actually connect those things. I think it was Louis Pasteur that said the you know, chance favors the prepared mind. And one of the things that you can do to prepare your mind is to expose it to puzzles, learning, art, music, science, um, you know, just anything that's new and different, new roots, new maps, new, new places, new cultures, um, new people, new thoughts. Now, I've also heard that um, different types of music can spur creativity, like binaural beats are supposed to... Um, change your brain waves to alpha or beta waves or whatever? That's an area I've not looked into, but it sounds very interesting. Uh, I, I'm often asked what type of music, um, should people listen to music while they're, they're working, while they're trying to do that focused work. And uh, um, I know that uh, any type of music that does not have lyrics in it is far more productive to your your thinking processes than um, than anything that has lyrics in it. So, in you know, a non lyrical music, could be anything from techno to classical to jazz or uh, anything that just doesn't have uh, lyrics in it. As soon as you add in the lyrics, then you are distracting yourself with the you know whatever it is that they're communicating becomes a uh, something to listen to in a different way and interpret, um, more so than the relaxation that you get with um, the different kinds of music that you might enjoy. But I'll take a look at right. uh, what you were... Yeah, you can go on YouTube and just uh, look up binaural beats. But I would say uh, you don't want the music to be like meditative because then you go to sleep. <laughs> that might be very relaxing, but not so good for uh, creativity and focus. <laughs> Well, that sounds very interesting. I'll take a look at that. Well, Barb, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you, how? what would you recommend? What's the best way? Oh, they're, they're more than welcome to. I'm, I always welcome a conversation with uh, people either on my phone, uh, 610-827-2767. You can certainly find me online at... Uh, SOS.com, excuse me, not SOS.com, SOSorganized.com. Again, that's uh, SOSorganized.com. Um, I'm always open to a conversation. 
So thank you so very much, Judy, for your invitation. And uh, I've enjoyed talking with you today. And I hope that uh, whomever is listening can find something that uh, is of value in, in our discussion today. Well, thanks again. And I pre- appreciate um, everything that you've shared. Thank you, Judy.